three, two, one. Thank you for joining us on Kentucky Caliber. This week I'm going to be sharing an excerpt from my forthcoming book, Invasion Z, Russia's Onslaught, Ukraine's Heroic Resistance, and the Brink of World War III. We're going to begin with the first chapter, which is entitled Motives, and the purpose of this chapter is to not only provide an overview for the coming for the rest of the book, but also to explain the Russian motives in the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. So I hope you enjoy. Here's part, here's an excerpt from chapter one. The E-105 International Road Network stretches over 2,000 miles in a north-south line, beginning in Hessing, Norway, and concluding in Kharkiv, Ukraine. When not near major cities, the asphalt highway tends to be two lanes, meandering along the vast countryside of the Central Asian steppe. Near the end of the route is the Ukrainian border, and the E-105 goes through Belgorod, a medium-sized Russian city of about 350,000. Founded as a border fortress in 1596, Belgorod, which can be translated as Town on a White Mountain, today is known for its Museum of Medieval Warfare and as the administrative center of the Belgorod Oblast. In the Russian scheme of government, an oblast is similar in structure and function to a U.S. state. At approximately 3.15 a.m. on February 22, 2022, Dr. Jeffrey Lewis, a non-proliferation professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, California, noticed something unusual on the E-105 south of Belgorod while looking at Google Earth. What Dr. Lewis saw was an enormous traffic jam, larger than any he'd ever seen around Belgorod, but from the local time, he knew it was far too early for the morning rush hour. Professor Lewis knew from satellite imagery the day before Russian military forces had been massing near Belgorod, and from the latest information, he said, quote, What was important about that image is that they were not set up in a camp. They were lined up in columns along roads, which is what you do when you're getting ready to pounce. Within minutes, the, col the column started moving south, which left no doubt. Russian military forces were headed towards Ukraine, only 24 miles away. Barely half an hour later, the Russian convoy crossed into Ukrainian territory, part of the Russian invasion which was underway not only from the north near Kharkiv from Belgorod, but also from Ukraine's south and east. About 300 kilometers to the south, early on the same morning in Cherkasy, an industrial city of about a quarter of a million people on the banks of the Dnieper River, people began waking up to what they thought would be another ordinary day. But as the first rays of morning sunlight were breaking, some residents saw messages on their mobile phones start flooding in. One of those residents, 25-year-old Ina Zertsova, recounted her experience. She said, quote, My phone started exploding with notifications. My friends were writing, watch, watch, with exclamation marks. The Russian president was on live. I was sleepy. I didn't realize what was happening. Why was he speaking live? All normal people are asleep at this time. Around 5 a.m., I started receiving notifications about explosions in the biggest towns and cities. I was still thinking that this was some joke, that it's not real. 
I didn't know what to do. I waited a little bit, 30 minutes, got afraid, and went to wake my mother. She was really angry. What do you want? she asked. And I told her, I think war has started. She asked me, war? Which war? And I said, Russia invaded Ukraine. Over a week earlier in the United States, President Biden had taken the unusual step of publicly stating he believed a Russian invasion of Ukraine appeared to be imminent. Biden's claims were initially met with a combination of skepticism, disbelief, and in some cases, outright mockery. After all, Russia had conducted exercises on Ukraine's borders before, often gathering large numbers of troops and equipment only to send them home after a few weeks in the field. At least two of those previous Russian exercises had also sparked concerns about an invasion, but when nothing happened, the world stopped paying attention. Remarkably, in February of 2022, this time, Russia did not dispute Biden's claim of a coming attack, except for the language he had used to describe it. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that a special military operation in Ukraine was indeed underway, but not an invasion. The facts, however, on the ground were indisputable. Russia was invading Ukraine from three directions, from the north, south, and east, with a large mechanized force accompanied by helicopters, fighter bombers, and special forces who were launching simultaneous attacks against dozens of Ukrainian cities. In addition to the intelligence provided by the U.S. government and European allies, which included satellite imagery clearly showing Russian, Russian forces surrounding Ukraine, private sector providers of intelligence soon backed up those claims with satellite images of their own. One of the best examples can be found at the Center for Information Resilience, a non-government organization which conducts digital forensics to counter the spread of disinformation online. CIR, as the organization is known, using teams of digital forensics analysts who use timestamps and geolocations of uploaded videos to verify authenticity, documented hundreds of Russian attacks on Ukrainian targets in the first week of the invasion alone. In addition, eyewitness accounts from Ukraine itself often showed in real time the myriad of attacks being carried out by Russian forces. Russian forces themselves posted video and audio content of their attacks, and the Kremlin acknowledged the military had initiated an operation in Ukraine. Telegram, a wildly popular messaging app in both Russia and Ukraine, saw the number of users on its platform jump by 3 million in one day, February 24, 2022, the day after Russia had invaded. Where claims of Russian attacks inside Ukraine were instantly provided with photos, videos, and detailed descriptions. Pro-Russian supporters on the platform had hoped a Russian attack was coming, and they greeted the supporting evidence provided by Russian forces themselves with cheers and heart emojis. Like countless invasions throughout history, Russia's invasion of Ukraine began to the sound of applause from its supporters. Why had Russia invaded Ukraine? To understand the chain of events leading to the 2022 invasion, we must first briefly go back nine years to a series of foundational events which took place in Ukraine. Nothing about those events made full-scale war between Russia and Ukraine inevitable, but once set in motion, the events of 2013 soon took on a life of their own 
eventually leading to the conflagration of 2022. What will become clear as we examine those events in more detail is a simple fact. Russia attacked Ukraine not because of anything NATO, Europe, or the United States had done. They attacked Ukraine specifically in response to actions undertaken by Ukrainians themselves. Russia's invasion was not a war against the West, per se. It was a war against the very idea of an independent Ukraine and of Ukraine's right to exist as a distinct culture and people. There can be no full or complete accounting of the current invasion without due attention to the historical context within which it took place. But to understand the immediate causes of the invasion, we must begin in 2013. On the morning of November 13, 2013, protests in Kyiv, Ukraine, began which would set off the chain of events leading to rounds of violence across the country which would ultimately culminate eight years later in the Russian invasion. Unraveling those events and making sense of the fighting that followed is an effort which must begin with a look at Ukraine's recent history. Granted independence after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, Ukraine derives its name from the Slavic word kry, which means edge, as in the edge of the Rus or Russian civilization. Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine all share a common cultural heritage which can be traced back to the 9th century in Kyiv. Located between Russia and the European Union, Ukraine is situated on a geopolitical fault line between the East and the West, identified by Professor Samuel Huntington in his famous Clash of Civilizations thesis. The protests and subsequent violence in Ukraine meant one thing. This fault line was active. Today, Ukraine had become a bleeding edge. To help make sense of the current war, in Ukraine, we need to understand the perspectives that were at play from the participants or those who helped bring it about, whether by design or inadvertently. Ukraine, Russia, and the Western perspectives all played a role. Without knowledge of how these viewpoints differ and why, it's impossible to see how and why the popular protests following the Maiden Revolution and the Russian response to them had led to the war we're seeing today. Understanding these points of view does not mean endorsing or advocating any particular one over another, but the three perspectives represented political and economic forces which were exerting pressure on Ukraine both from within and without. Economic woes were at the heart of the crisis in Ukraine nine years ago. In 2013, Ukraine's then-president Viktor Yanukovych had refused, at the last minute, to sign an economic agreement which would have more closely aligned Ukraine with the European Union. His refusal to sign triggered the protest movement that would come to be known as the Maiden Protests, so named after the Maiden, an area which is in the heart of downtown Kiev where the protests first erupted. The trade agreement Yanukovych refused to sign would not have made Ukraine a member of the European Union, but it would have made for closer ties between the EU and Ukraine. For example, Ukrainians, for the first time under that agreement, would have been authorized to travel throughout the European Union without visas. The visa process is currently so long and frustrating for applicants, it effectively makes travel impossible. This provision was very popular in Ukraine, especially among the young people under the age of 30. 
Meanwhile, Ukraine's significant ethnic, ethnic Russian population, many of whom live in the far eastern portion of Ukraine, overwhelmingly supported Yanukovych's decision, even while the rest of Ukraine erupted in anger. Nearly everyone in Ukraine agreed something had to be done about Ukraine's economic problems. But while a majority saw the solution as embracing closer ties to Europe, Ukraine's ethnic Russian population in the Far East instead wanted closer ties with Russia. Until November 13, 2013, the disagreements roiling Ukraine had been confined to words and rhetoric, sometimes heated and shouted, but non-violent. After that morning, things turned violent, and from that point on, competing narratives emerged as to why the protests had begun, why they turned violent, and each narrative corresponded to one of the three perspectives, Ukrainian, Russian, or Western, with Western in this context meaning primarily European. Those dueling narratives themselves acted as accelerants, inflaming public opinion and drawing in new participants to the fray. As the protests continued in 2013, a heavy-handed security crackdown took place, which further enraged the protesters, intensifying their efforts. As the situation spiraled into more violence, with security for forces and protesters confronting each other in the streets of Kyiv, the battle to control the narrative of what was happening also kicked into overdrive. People both inside Ukraine and around the world wondered what exactly was happening. Part of the answer depends on whether you read your news in English or Russian. There are two versions of events that took place that morning and in the protests that followed. In the English version, President Yanukovych sent armed police to attack hundreds of protesters. The UK Daily Mail ran this headline, quote, harrowing footage emerges of unarmed protesters cut down by sniper fire. And the Wall Street Journal reported, quote, Ukraine accuses Yanukovych of ordering troops to shoot protesters. English audiences were also told the protesters in Kyiv were simply exercising their right to free speech by demonstrating against a notoriously corrupt regime being protected by covert Russian security forces. Meanwhile, a very different story was presented to audiences who consumed their news in Russian. At the same time, in November of 2013, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov warned, quote, Russia has a duty not to allow fascism to spread throughout Europe and the world at large. In an 80-page report published online, the Russian government claimed Ukrainian fascists had taken power in an armed coup against President Viktor Yanukovych. Later on, in what could be called an example of a self-fulfilling prophecy, the off-sided Azov Battalion, which does indeed contain white right-wing extremists in its ranks, did not exist until 2014, having been formed only in response to the Russian attacks, which would later come in Crimea and Donbass. In a blow to technology enthusiasts, the presence of copious video footage from smartphones and other mobile recording devices not only failed to clarify what was happening in Kyiv, online content actually increased confusion by providing each side with a conflicting narrative and what supporters claimed were irrefutable proof that their version of events was the correct one. Prior to 2013, there had been no mentions of Nazis in Ukraine in Russian news sources. Then, in an instant as 2013 drew to a close, 
Russian state TV suddenly declared Ukraine was infested with right-wing fascists and that Russia had a duty to stop them. The charge of Nazis in Ukraine carried more weight than a simple insult. Such invectives tapped into deep Russian cultural memories about the Second World War. We cannot understand the current situation in Ukraine without context provided by the events of World War II, and it's worth taking a brief amount of time to examine how that war left lasting scars in both Ukraine and Russia, which continue to shape events today. Americans, who are familiar with our own history of beliefs that the United States is an exceptional nation, will find similarities in how the Second World War fed Russian beliefs about their own unique destiny. On June 21, 1941, 4 million German ground troops, accompanied by 3,350 tanks, 7,000 field gun, and 2,000 aircraft, invaded the Soviet Union, moving east along a north-south front stretching over 1,000 miles. It remains the largest invasion in human history. By the time it had concluded nearly four years later, 30 million Russians had been killed. Hundreds of Russian cities had been besieged and destroyed. Huge expanses of territory had been gobbled up by the German army. Yet, during that same time, the United States remained a nation at peace, not entering the Second World War until after the attack on Pearl Harbor, which occurred six months after Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa, the German codename for the invasion of the Soviet Union. While Japan swept through the Pacific and Hitler ravaged Europe and Russia, American leaders continued to emphasize a desire to avoid entering the war except in case of direct attack. That attack, of course, came on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, two full years after the Second World War had been underway. Pearl Harbor, terrible though it was, had resulted in over 3,000 American deaths. During the entirety of the war with Germany, the Soviet Union averaged 3,000 deaths per day for over three straight years. Americans and Soviets experienced two different versions of World War II, and those experiences drove national ambitions and strategic thinking when the war had ended. While American casualties stood at around 420,000, conservative estimates put Soviet losses, as mentioned, at around 30 million, but possibly many more. For every American who died in the Second World War, 64 Soviet citizens were killed. No American cities were damaged, and while hundreds of Soviet towns and urban centers were razed to the ground, Americans were able to keep their distance from the carnage, while in the Soviet Union, destruction became a part of daily life. Because of those different experiences, Americans and Soviet reactions to the war were understandably markedly different. Those differences grew into distinct national themes, with each nation believing the war proved they were exceptional on the stage of world history. The Soviet Union had survived apocalyptic levels of damage and human carnage, yet continued to fight on, not only defeating Nazi Germany, but conquering the whole of Eastern Europe along the way. Meanwhile, in the United States, there had been no physical damage, and compared to combatant nations such as Germany, Japan, Russia, France, and Great Britain, the U.S. had suffered relatively few casualties. A legitimate claim to victory with such small human losses in the United States came to be interpreted as proof of a people with a special place in the destiny of human affairs. Americans felt they were exceptional. Soviet, the Soviet citizens believed the same thing, but for a different reason. Where Americans believed they were exceptional because they had suffered so relatively little, 
The Soviets believed they were exceptional because they had suffered so very much, yet still attained victory. In Russian history books, World War II is referred to as the Great Patriotic War, and there is no question Russia suffered the most casualties of any nation in that conflict. As a result, a deep and lasting cultural memory exists today among Russians about the Second World War, and claims of Nazis in Ukraine tapped into this collective memory. Of course, Ukraine also suffered horribly at the hands of the Nazi invaders who destroyed and plundered Ukraine on their way to Russia in 1941. Large massacres of Ukrainian Jews by Nazis took place in Kiev and Lviv along with countless other atrocities. Ukrainians found themselves trapped between two rival powers, accused by the Nazis of being collaborators with the Russians and accused by the Russians of being collaborators with the Nazis. This after a decade of intentional starvation policies at the hand of Stalin. Ukraine again found itself ravaged by Nazi invaders in 1941. The Russian claims of Nazis in Ukraine were de designed to generate not only patriotic fervor in Russia, but also hatred of this new enemy. Russian military forces are required to watch one hour of state television every day, and for months the constant though false refrain of Nazis in Ukraine was hammered into the minds of Russian soldiers. While at the same time, these claims were made and viewed more frequently by Russian civilians, and the purpose of this propaganda was twofold. First, to give Russian soldiers tacit permission to be as brutal as possible in any future operation in Ukraine, and second, to convince the Russian public not to care about future atrocities, because surely nothing was too extreme when you're fighting against the Nazis. As we will see later on, the past eight years of state propaganda laid the foundation for Russian war crimes in Ukraine, while at the same time it provided the foundation for the rallying cries of the separatists in the Donbas region, which initiated a new round of conflict in Ukraine itself. Russian authorities offered no evidence to support their claims of Nazis in Ukraine, and indeed there were few stories in any Russian-speaking news sources about Ukrainian fascists until after the Maiden protests had began. Like many countries, Ukraine did, and still does, have a very small far-right movement. But they do not possess popular support, nor do they have any control over the Ukrainian government. In 2019, far-right groups won 2.7% of the vote in national elections, making them hardly a major force in national policymaking. So while Ukraine does have far-right groups, who are worrisome as their counterparts in Europe and the United States are, the fact is a Nazi-dominated Ukraine is a fiction created by Moscow in order to whip up Russian popular support for the coming war Russia would launch in stages against their Ukrainian neighbors. Global audiences could see much of the strife in Kyiv online, but they had few ways to verify what they were actually watching. Were dead bodies in Maiden Square the result of anti-government protesters, soldiers, neo-Nazis, pro-Russian demonstrators, police, or something else? As time went on, and no actual Nazis were found in Ukraine, but Russia continued to propagate that fiction at a loud and continuous volume. State-run media, which dominate television and internet coverage in Russia, trumpeted the imaginary threat around the clock. As a result, perception of events in Kyiv quickly ceased to be based on what was known and instead became based on what Americans, Europeans, and Russians believed. 
and that switch in perception helped create the conditions necessary for the further spread of violent conflict across Ukraine. By solidifying those positions into immovable obstacles, they came into conflict with each other. And what people believed depended greatly on where they got their news, whether it was from Europe, Ukraine, or Russia. Of these three categories, the Russian perspective is perhaps the easiest to understand, and so is the distortion of Russian thinking due to state propaganda, which can explain, in part, why the coming war would be embraced by a majority of the Russian public. Russia certainly has national interest in Ukraine, and in particular, eastern Ukraine. Eastern Ukraine is home to a number, a large number of ethnic Russians, and it shares an enormous border with Russia, and it's home to two major industrial cities, Donetsk and Lugansk, and it represents an example of how the residual pull of the Soviet Union still exerts pressure on former Soviet satellite nations today. Russian gas moves through Ukraine to get to its biggest market in Europe, and geography has placed Ukraine between Europe and Russia, making it a potential buffer zone. Once in the 19th century and once in the 20th century, armies from Europe came through these lands to attack Russia, once under the command of Napoleon and again under the command of Hitler. Because of its economic value at transporting Russian energy and its geographic position, not to mention the shared cultural and historical ties, Russia is not wrong to see Ukraine as a potential source of national security or as a potential economic and security threat to Russian interests. But Russian national interests alone are not enough to explain Russia's behavior with respect to Ukraine of late. The legacy of the Soviet Union looms large over the current perception of Ukraine by Russian leaders, especially Russian President Vladimir Putin. Under the Soviet Union, Ukraine had a special place amongst the various socialist republics which constituted the USSR, which stood for Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics. Second in size only to Russia, and populated by fellow Slavs with a shared history and similar language, the old Soviet saying went like this, Russia without Ukraine is a nation. Russia with Ukraine is an empire. The Soviet Union even entrusted Ukraine with nuclear weapons, though Ukrainian officials voluntarily relinquished those in 1991 in order to gain independent nationhood. Russia's imperial ambitions to be a major world power, perhaps even the preeminent power in Europe and Asia, rest on the allegiance of Ukraine. Without control of Ukraine, Russia cannot hope to fulfill imperial ambitions of presiding over a Russian-dominated Eurasian zone of land stretching from Lisbon to Vladivostok. The loss of Ukraine, which would be a fatal blow to Russian imperial ambitions, combined with the shared history between Ukraine and Russia and expectations of cooperation from the Russian perspective, bring us to the point of understanding the basic underlying motive for Russia's 2022 invasion. To Russian President Vladimir Putin, Ukraine's desire to integrate more closely with Europe meant only one thing, betrayal. Putin is not wrong when he pointed out the amount of financial and military resources Russia and the Soviet Union before it had invested in Ukraine. Initially, he was not being unreasonable when he said Russia had a right to expect something in return for all those investments. But what he expected above all were things Ukrainians were not prepared to give him, namely loyalty and obedience. 
By moving closer to Europe, to Putin's way of thinking, Ukraine had betrayed Russia and the Russian people. That they had done so out of economic interest, but also because they had a very different view of history, is something we will ex explore in more detail in the later chapter, chapter called History as a Weapon. But either way, when Ukrainians drove out Yanukovych, a favorite of Moscow, that elevated their act of betrayal in Putin's mind to something closer to an act of war. Mr. Putin has clearly indicated through his own words and deeds that he would not allow such a betrayal to go unpunished. It wasn't the actions of NATO or the EU which triggered the war in Ukraine, it was the actions of the Ukrainians themselves. And it wasn't the protests in the streets of Kyiv, but the rejection of Russian control which roused the most anger amongst Russian leaders. In anger, Russian leaders sought to denigrate Ukrainians in the worst way they could think of by calling them Nazis. These new state-sanctioned lies were like throwing gasoline on a fire, sparking separatist movements in Ukraine's far eastern sections. After all, if Ukraine could chase out Russian puppets, might not other former Soviet satellites start to believe that they could do the same? From the Russian perspective, unless Ukraine was brought back in line, the entire quest to restore the Russian Empire to greatness would only fail. The legacy of Soviet rule shows us why. This has been an excerpt from the Chapter 1, Motives, of my book, Invasion Z, Russia's Onslaught, Heroic Ukrainian Resistance, and the Brink of World War III. I hope you've enjoyed the first chapter, and I look forward to hearing any questions or comments or feedback that folks may have about it. And I hope that it primes interest in the release of the book, both in electronic and audio form, which will be coming up on May 30th of this year. So thanks for listening, and I hope everyone has a great day. Yeah,